In the late 1600s, Britain was, spiritually speaking, in something of a confusing place for the average citizen. With the Protestant reform in full swing, many old traditions were being unceremoniously cast aside by the officials while still being clung to by the public, leading to a thriving underground trade in charms and trinkets and the quiet trade of conjurers, folk healers and those ministers willing to indulge in the old Catholic rituals. In Cleworth Hall, an estate manor on the outskirts of Manchester, the owner, Nicholas Starkey, was forced to dig into this deep underground market when he found his household ravaged by a host of demons. Fortunately, there was an exorcist willing to help, though with his ministry as controversial as it was, it would not be long before the officials would sweep him away with all the other traditions that they felt no longer had a place in a society that was rapidly changing, seemingly, at times, without a rudder. This is Dark Histories, where the facts are worse than fiction. Hello and welcome to Dark History Season 7, Episode 20. I'm your host, Ben. Today, we've got another kind of spooky season-esque story for you. Uh, it's all about 16th century demonic hauntings, but hopefully, as always, there's also a little bit more to it than that. Just a quick reminder before we start, today's episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. If you want to sign up for online therapy, you can do so. And if you use the link betterhelp.com forward slash darkhistories, then there's an automatic 10% off. So yeah, give that a crack if you fancy a little bit of online therapy. So let's jump straight into it then. This episode is called The Lancashire Seven, Possessions, Exorcisms and Executions. At the dawn of the 16th century, England was a Catholic nation and the religious landscape was one of relative simplicity. Before long, however, with the emergence of Protestantism and the separation of church and state, the situation quickly turned complex, hostile and increasingly violent as opposing ideas fought over the position and promise of a national orthodoxy. In continental Europe, the Protestant Reformation was making waves across the Channel, removing the Pope as the central authority from their worship and many of their academic and theological writings were finding their way into England. With the establishment of the Church of England in 1534, established by the King Henry VIII, in an effort to annul his marriage to Catherine of Aragon after the Pope had disallowed it, several key Protestant doctrines were adopted by the new Christian branch, further assisting the Reformation on English shores. And by the middle of the century, the religious and political landscape was in significant turmoil. With the ascendancy of Mary I, herself a staunch Catholic, outspoken Protestants quickly found themselves facing a sharp point of persecution. Fortunately, Mary's reign was short and her successor, Elizabeth I, sought to balance the interests of both parties and calm the unstable environment. As time passed, a fragile degree of coexistence between the factions slowly formed, but for many, especially those in rural locations, it was the internal struggles within Protestantism that caused the most difficulty, as Puritan and Episcopal branches fought for dominance. All the while, Catholic practices still remained within the Church of England, especially in rural locations, and this, along with a blend of folk traditions and fringe practitioners, a complicated landscape was formed in a system that was far from homogenous. Meanwhile, Europe was in the grips of what was later deemed a golden age of demonic possession, an exorcism, a practice previously in the realm of the Catholics and increasingly viewed as counter-reformationist, was undergoing its own struggle 
as new Protestant parishes sought to find a demonological orthodoxy that sat in line with their reformed spirituality. In many cases, this meant that the general public, used to turn into the clergy for help in such matters, were now pushed into seeking help underground. At the end of the century, in the county of Lancashire in the northwest of England, a case of multiple possessions was set to further shake up the religious landscape when the estate of a minor member of the English gentry found his household attacked by the devil and his exhaustive efforts eventually pushed him towards seeking out an exorcist. After marrying Anne Parr of Cleworth in 1578, Nicholas Starkey inherited the house and grounds of Cleworth Estate in the region of a large rural farming community in the county of Lancashire. Taking after his father, who had similarly married into a landowning family, the Starkeys were a powerful family throughout the Northwest, and this consolidation of wealth and property was a theme that would continue right through to the 19th century, eventually accumulating over 9,000 acres of land across multiple estates, with members of the family holding positions as judges, lawmakers and politicians. In the 16th century, the Starkeys had already long been influential in local politics and had been drawn upon by Queen Elizabeth to supply arms and financial backing to both the local militia and the Royal Navy in its fight with the Spanish Armada. And whilst Nicholas's patriarchal reign was somewhat more peaceful, he was nevertheless a man of some social stature in the surrounding area. The house on the estate, Cleworth Hall, was a two-storey, half-timber-framed building with steeply pitched roof, exuding in characteristic Tudor style that sat within a small moat upon 163 acres of land, 14 miles to the west of Manchester, on the outskirts of the small parish of Lee in Lancashire. In the late 16th century, the county of Lancashire was a relatively poor rural region of England. Agriculturally barren, it was a bleak landscape for many outside of the emerging textile industry that made up the majority of the county's economy. Far away from London, it was home to a politically conservative population, many of whom clung to the old Catholic beliefs and practices, and a strong practising Catholic presence remained long after the Reformation. Nicholas Starkey's wife was one such Catholic, making her somewhat less well-considered in the region, despite her wealth and social position. It was also this fact that the neighbours jumped on after her first four children were stillborn, with many reformists suggesting that she was being punished by God for her beliefs. Despite their unfortunate start to family life, Nicholas and Anne settled into Cleworth Hall and eventually gave birth to two healthy children, a son named John in 1584 and a daughter named Anne a year later. By 1594, they had also taken in three foster children who boarded at Cleworth in order to gain a respectable education. The youngest, Eleanor Hardman, was just 10 years old. Ellen Holland was 12, and Margaret Hartman, Eleanor's older sister, was 14. And the house, complete with a full array of domestic staff, was a warm family home, abuzz with activity daily. Just when life seemed to be settling into a comfortable, metronomic routine, events quickly turned south, when, in February of 1594, Nicholas's daughter, Anne, began having peculiar fits, described as fearful staring and pulling together of her body. At first, Nicholas and Anne put it down to a chill or fever and didn't suffer too much bother. But a week later, when John was found shouting out randomly on his way to school, concerns rose. The condition of the two children deteriorated rapidly over the following days 
and within a week they were ravaged by daily violent fits, their bodies contorting painfully for hours on end. Nicholas turned to conventional medicine at first, and over the following two months spent over £200 on hiring physicians to come out to Cleworth Hall and observe the children, but none had any answers and any treatments that were suggested had no effect at all. On the recommendation of Anne, and growing somewhat desperate, Nicholas changed tact and contacted a local Catholic priest, hoping to try spiritual treatment, but plans fell through after he failed to smuggle his Book of Rites into England. At something of a dead end, Nicholas instead turned to a local man named Edmund Hartley, who was well known as a folk healer. Folk healers, otherwise known as conjurers, cunning folk, white witches and wizards, were well featured throughout the British Isles, despite the long-running and violent prejudice against witchcraft and sorcery. Utilising low magic, most were professionals dabbling in charms, spells and herbal remedies to address a broad range of medical and societal issues, from protection against malevolent witchcraft and fortune-telling to healing, matchmaking and astrology. The Witchcraft Act of 1563 had officially outlawed the use of any kind of magic at all, but with their practices still welcomed in most areas, they maintained a steady trade outside of the influence of the church officials and were often well known in rural villages and towns. Stakes could be high and the chance of being executed for witchcraft was a real possibility and the mainstream Protestant view of the day was that magic, whether high or low or for good or for ill, was all one and the same with equal punishments. These feelings from the general public weren't much helped by the recent death of Ferdinando Stanley, the 5th Earl of Derby, who had died of a mysterious illness in April of 1594. It was likely a poisoning, but rumours persisted, pointing towards the magic of a local cunning woman. The fact that Nicholas Starkey turned to such a healer in Edmund Hartley shows that no matter the official view on cunning folk, the regular population, even those quite high up in the social ladder, were more entrenched in the folk traditions than the churches were perhaps entirely comfortable with. In keeping with many cunning folk in history, Hartley's background is, is not particularly well known. It's possible that he suffered from epilepsy due to his being described as suffering from frequent seizures, and it's likely these fits that would have been seen as evidence of possible demonic influence and a way for him to have channeled magic. It's also highly likely that he spent a fair amount of time reading and dabbling within the occult, a theme of considerable interest throughout Lancashire in the 16th century. Nicholas Starkey paid Hartley £2 annually for the treatment of his children, employing a collection of what was described as popish charms and herbs. Thankfully for everyone at Cleworth Hall, the healer's charms had almost instant effect, and over the following weeks, months and years, Hartley gradually worked his way into the household, making himself indispensable to the children's well-being and springing into action whenever their fits relapsed. Sensing a situation that he could manipulate to his advantage, Hartley waited until Nicholas relied on him completely before threatening to leave the country in June of 1596, just as John had come down with a succession of nosebleeds. Panicked that the trusty healer would not be around in the future, Nicholas quickly negotiated a new contract with Hartley capitulating to his demands of 40 shillings per year with bed and board in Cleworth Hall, moving him permanently into the household. It might have seemed like a steep pay rise, but Hartley had already proved he was worth it, and in truth, it was a step down, as Hartley had initially requested for his own residence and plot of land, a deal which Nicholas had rejected, 
causing Hartley to kick up a huge fuss and threaten to make a shout at Cleworth as never was heard. It was all hot air, apparently, from Hartley at least. The whole thing had been a power move on his part, and he'd come out of it nicely enough. Not everyone was thrilled by the new resident, Cleworth Hall, though, especially after Hartley quickly began living up to his reputation as something of a lecherous old pervert, and his attentions frequently turned towards the young women of the Harat. Frequently turned to the young women of the house, harassing the maids, leaning in to attempt to steal a kiss from them every time they passed in the hallways. His inappropriate behaviour wasn't limited to the maids either, and the young foster girls gained an equal amount of attention. Despite this fairly grotesque behaviour, he did somehow begin some sort of relationship with with the 30-year-old maid, Jane Ashton. There were rumours that the two even planned to marry. Naturally, this behaviour caused a considerable amount of friction throughout the household, and it wasn't long before the Starkeys, who had originally welcomed the healer into the house, now merely tolerated the old man keeping him around begrudgingly, knowing that he was the only one seemingly capable of keeping a lid on the two young ones' peculiar behaviour. Things reached breaking point when Nicholas travelled to his father's estate, 30 miles north to Wally Parish, with Hartley in tow. On the first night, Nicholas fell ill, tormented by sores and mind-suffering that kept him awake all night long. When he told Hartley about it the next day, the old healer walked off out into the woods. He sketched an occult summoning circle on the floor and divided it into four sections dotted with crosses. And then he returned to Nicholas and told him to head out to the circle and trace the pattern with his own steps. The circle, Hartley ensured him, was a protective charm used to keep him safe from wicked spells or curses laid out on him by a witch or occultist sorcerer. Frightened, Nicholas followed the instructions but found the whole affair to be entirely out of line. The type of magic that Hartley was invoking with the summoning circle was highly illegal occult magic and would have seen them both hanged if anyone had seen the ritual carried out. Although Hartley's popular folk magic was technically illegal, it was far easier for most to turn a blind eye towards that than this sort of high magic that was undoubtedly something much darker and pointed towards the malefic. As soon as they returned to Cleworth Hall, Nicholas began looking for a new physician to take care of the children hoping to dispose of Hartley as soon as possible. On a trip to Manchester, Nicholas took his son John's urine sample in efforts to get a new diagnosis from the physicians there. He also met with John Dee, an English scientist and natural philosopher whose career and reputation had scaled incredible heights and trawled through some of the depths of the occult. Born in London in 1527, John Dee claimed to trace his family heritage back to Rodri the Great, a 9th century Welsh king. Graduating from Cambridge, he became a fellow of Trinity College and travelled widely throughout Europe to study and lecture, where he continued to read in subjects as varied as mathematics, geometry, alchemy, astronomy and cartography, whilst also amassing enough books to claim one of the largest personal libraries in Britain. In 1558, upon Queen Elizabeth I's ascension to the throne, He took the position as astrological and scientific advisor to the crown and was one of the principal figures influential in the creating of the early British Empire, a term that he himself is credited for coining. After gaining such an esteemed reputation within the sciences and famed for being one of the wisest men in England, Dee began to feel disillusioned by many aspects of the royal court and instead took to his own private study in the realms of the supernatural magic, which he saw as the only avenue left to him 
to learn the truth of the natural sciences. Utilising the practice of scrying, these sought to make contact with angels in order to learn higher levels of knowledge, convinced that his efforts would bring great strides to his own learning and humankind in general. Unfortunately for Dee, with the Reformation, the English laws and the population at large had all grown highly suspicious of any kind of high magic and feared the witchcraft and occult that most saw as inseparable. By now, Dee was operating on the hazy margins of acceptability and as such was installed as the Warden of Christ College in Manchester in 1595, a position that was likely only offered to him due to his close relationship with the Queen. Nicholas Starkey approached Dee after most likely having heard of Dee's attempted exorcism upon his maidservant Anne Frank five years earlier. In August of 1590, Dee had concluded that it was evident his maid had been possessed by a spirit that had long been tempting her. Over the next ten days, he anointed her with holy oil, which he rubbed into her breasts, while carrying out Catholic prayers specific for exorcism. Evidently, this exorcism was unsuccessful as... A week later, the maid was rescued in the nick of time after attempting to drown herself in the well, and on September 29th, she successfully cut her own throat whilst returning from prayer. Perhaps traumatised by this event, Dee declined to help Nicholas himself, but instead he suggested Nicholas seek out some godly preachers to invoke spiritual help. Whilst in Manchester, Nicholas also told Dee about Hartley's magical circle and Dee summoned the healer in order to reprimand him for his use of magic, and somewhat hypocritically advised him to steer clear of dark magic and his attempts to interact with the spirits. Following Nicholas's return from Manchester, the Starkey household fell quiet over Christmas. It was a nice respite for everyone, but it also had the secondary effect of casting further suspicion upon Hartley. By this point, Nicholas was beginning to entertain the idea that he and his children's woes were actually being caused by Hartley's magic rather than being healed, and the quiet that followed Dee's reprimand further cemented this idea. Things became no easier when on January the 4th, John fell into his worst fits yet. Something gave him such a thump in the neck that he was suddenly stricken down with the most horrible strike and said that Satan had broken his neck, lying there pitifully tormented for the space of two hours. John then spent the rest of the night tossing and tumbling whilst his screams echoed through the large rooms of Cleworth Hall. At times he was described as being exceeding fierce and strong like a madman, or rather like a mad dog, biting and snatching at anyone who attempted to hold him down to the bed. Exceedingly violent throughout the night, he threw a piece of his wooden bed frame at the servants and tossed his pillows into the open fire. It was a rough night, but it was also just the first in a long two months of difficult evenings as John's condition fell severely downhill. At times, he would slip into an uneasy trance, a euphoric haze enveloping him whilst he uttered strange prophetic statements about the sins of this land committed in all estates and groups of people. Alongside this problematic descent, Anne also followed suit, falling into terrible fits that were considerably worse than before, with neither child responding to Hartley's old treatments. Things progressed even further when the three young foster girls, Margaret, Eleanor and Ellen, also fell ill, quickly followed by two of the maids, Jane Ashton and Margaret Byram. Margaret Byram had joined the domestic staff in January and like all the other maids, Hartley had taken an immediate liking to her and the two had formed a peculiar relationship. 
One night, she had heard a strange noise coming from Hartley's room, and fearing that he had fallen into one of his fits, she sat down beside his bed to check on him. Before long, Hartley was leaning over her and apparently breathed the devil into her, paralysing her in the bed and leaving her senseless for some time after. Jane Ashton was also convinced that she was being possessed after she had been caught by Hartley sneaking into his room several days before to have a look through his belongings. Upon being caught by the healer, she had felt a sharp pain in her neck and spent the next two days inexplicably coughing up blood. By the end of January, the possessed of Cleworth Hall was up to the count of seven tormented souls, all falling into violent fits, and the halls of the house were filled with pain screams night after night. It was all enough for Nicholas, and when Margaret Byron went home to Salford to visit family in early February, escorted by Hartley, several members of the clergy were sent to visit her and give them their prayers. One, a curate of John Dee, Matthew Palmer, challenged Hartley to recite the Lord's Prayer, and when Hartley was unable to do so, he reported the healer to the local Justice of the Peace, who had Hartley arrested under suspicion of witchcraft. Escorted back to Cleworth Hall to collect his belongings before being taken off to jail, the Starkey children flew off the handle in his presence, shouting abuse at him and lashing out with their fists, only stopping when the officials stepped in to drag Hartley away. The investigation was a relatively short affair. The Justice of the Peace visited Cleworth Hall throughout February and March, looking to take sworn depositions from the residents. However, all of the possessed said they had found themselves unable to speak against the healer and claimed that Hartley had stopped their mouths. Margaret Byram told the officials that Hartley had sent the devil to torment her throughout the night before, promising her riches if she would give a false testimony to help out the healer. In the end, Nicholas was the only one able to give a solid testimony, telling the officials about the summoning circle that he had been made to tread whilst at his father's house. The magic circle was a serious allegation, however, and it was evidently quite enough for the officials who concluded that Hartley had bewitched the Cleworth estate, primarily by kissing the young girls and breathing the devil into their bodies. On March the 6th, he was sentenced to be hanged for witchcraft. Hartley remained steadfast in his innocence right up until his execution, when the rope that had been slipped over his head snapped during the hanging. Seeing this fumbled execution as a second chance, Hartley confessed that he had drawn the circle on the ground in order to cause harm, and he was then promptly hanged a second time. This time, it was successful. Edmund Hartley's execution may have been something of a relief to Nicholas Starkey, but it would have been short-lived because Cleworth Hall was now faced with a big problem. Primarily, the fact that none of the possessions had ended upon Hartley's death. With a household full of troubled children and household staff and an executed folk healer, it fell to Nicholas to seek a new cure. Quickly, he began scouting the clergy for help. Several men of faith visited, but none could offer any help, and out of desperation, Nicholas visited Dee once more. Dee still refused to get involved personally, but instead he offered to write to John Darrell, a minister from Nottinghamshire where he acted as a curate and a man who had published experience with exorcism. In the years following the Reformation, many of the relics and charms that had been utilised by so many as forms of protection had been dismissed by the church as Catholic superstition and discarded in their own practices. The people were not quite as keen as the church to toss out every old tradition, however, 
and many clung on to the comfort of the old ways, whilst the Protestant church grappled with itself to develop viable alternatives that they could substitute in to offer the population some reassurance. Exorcism, too, was a victim of these reformist ideals, and as such, it fell to men like John Darrell to come up with their own rituals to replace traditional Catholic depossessions. John Darrell had been born in Nottinghamshire in 1562, and he had gone on to graduate from Queen's College in Cambridge. Choosing the School of Law to further his studies, he struggled with motivation, and instead, after interpreting this as a sign from God, he returned to Nottinghamshire, where he married, started a family, and gave himself to studying the church instead, operating as a lay preacher in the surrounding villages. Fully ordained as a minister in 1589, he threw himself into the role of healer to those afflicted by the devil, which he believed had been assigned to him by God. Developing a belief that demonic possession and witchcraft were one and the same, Darrell morphed into something of a demonologist, quickly popularising the idea that all possessions were caused by witchcraft. Darrell had risen to a degree of fame three years before becoming a minister, when, in 1586, he had carried out the dispossession of a 17-year-old local woman named Catherine Wright, during a period when such rituals were more often carried out by underground Catholics. Catherine Wright's possession began after she went to fetch a pail of water from the well and was confronted by the vision of a young girl with no feet. These visions quickly became a common feature in her everyday life, along with migraines and bouts of insomnia. Diagnosed with want of sleep and a difficult home life, her symptoms were dismissed at first. Catherine's father had died when she was very young, and her mother had remarried a man who was apt to violence, regularly beating Catherine and her mother. As her symptoms grew more varied, they also grew more difficult, and soon she claimed she had visions of standing over a fiery precipice. She fell into fits and spent a considerable amount of time screaming. Before long, Catherine's condition became the talk of the village, and demonic possession began being floated as a possible cause with their treatment eventually given to the care of Darrell, who at the time was still operating as a lay preacher in the area and had fostered a strong reputation as both a man of God and a spiritual healer, not a million miles from the cunning folk. When Darrell learnt of Catherine's situation, he was immediately convinced of her possession and he travelled to meet her, finding her in an advanced state of possession, displaying acts of superhuman strength and the ability to read his mind. Two days after their first meeting, Darrell began the dispossession at 4am, utilising scripture and prayer, notably excluding those from any Catholic writings. Eight hours later, the exorcism was declared a success, though it did take a second exorcism to complete the job fully, and since he stuck purely to scriptural processes and maintained that dispossession was carried out solely via the power of God, the church could find no fault in his practices. Darrell went on to further develop his exorcist ministry over the following years. When the Cleworth Hall case was brought to him via Dee and Nicholas Starkey, Darrell consulted with the ministers of his Ashby parish and began to treat the residents of Cleworth Hall, setting out to Lancashire along with George Moore, who was to act as his assistant and scribe in order to document the process. The pair reached Cleworth on March 16th to a scene of chaos, as all of the possessed children were piled into a room where they were thrown around, apparently consumed by their convulsions. As Darrell and Moore watched on, their stomachs swelled, visible lumps rose and bubbled beneath their skin, 
and they screamed and swore, yelling at Daryl that he'd not be able to hang the devil. Retreating, the two ministers, feeling discouraged by what they had seen and concerned at the difficulty of the task ahead, spent the next day convening with the local minister from Lee, John Dickens, whose assistance they sought. Over supper, the party spent the evening discussing their method of approach before agreeing to reconvene at the estate the following day. The next morning at 7am, each of the children and two maids were laid out on individual beds in a single chamber room where they spent all morning screaming and convulsing whilst Daryl and his assistants committed to a fast that would enforce their prayers. Daryl's party had by now grown to over 30 members and all did their best to either engage in the prayer alongside Daryl or else act to hold down the children as they lashed out with their limbs, screaming at the top of their lungs. The first breakthrough finally came eight hours later, when 14-year-old Margaret Hardman bellowed out into the room, I cannot tarry, I cannot tarry, I am too hot, I am too hot, let me go, let me go. Her shouting kicked off the six others possessed who erupted into the room, roaring and bellowing in such extreme and fearful manner. It was a scene that deeply disturbed everyone present. The assistants struggled, clasping the girls' hands and feet to the sofas, until eventually, one by one, they all fell stiff, which Daryl described as, as if stark dead. One by one, these possessed girls gave in to their spiritual attack, with Margaret Byron the first to become successfully depossessed. Sitting up, she spat a mouthful of bloody matter before falling perfectly still for 30 minutes when she then sat up bolt upright. A dark mist, which she said she had felt coursing up to her body, came out of her mouth, springing out in the likeness of a crow's head that then flew up and out of the window with a flash of fire, leaving the young girl to praise God with nothing but a sore throat and a filthy smell. John Starkey capitulated next the spirit leaving his body as blood gushed from his nose and mouth. He described as a man with a bulge on his back, very ill-favoured, crept out from inside of him. This figure did try to re-enter John, but he was said to have remained strong of faith and battled the demon away. Margaret Byron, Anne Starkey, Ellen Holland were all next, all describing seeing the similar description of John's misshapen man leaving their bodies, though in Anne's case it was a foul, ugly man with a white beard and a bulge on his chest as big as a man's head. The figure that erupted from Eleanor's body was described as an urchin that fled through a small hole in the wall of the chamber, though it soon returned in a very foul shape, promising her gold and whatsoever she would desire if she would allow it to enter her again, though she stood fast and denied the demon. By the end of the day, Daryl and his entourage had exercised six of the demons successfully, with only Jane Ashton causing further difficulties, as the cured children spent an uneasy, vulnerable night battling with the returning demons who came back throughout, promising the victims gold and riches in the form of a dark figure with shoulders higher than his head and fire in his mouth. Once resisted, this figure resorted to threatening them all with violence, telling Margaret Byron that it would throw her into a pit or threatening to break John Starkey's neck. In other forms, the demons returned as a giant bear, an ape, and even a white dove, but the children resisted them all, and eventually the chamber fell silent as they drifted off to sleep, after what had been a traumatic and long day. That night, Daryl sat next to Jane Ashton, 
who continued to struggle. Her possession concluded to have been the worst and strongest. The following morning, she woke with a start, screaming and raging, convulsing in fits and vomiting. The devil, she said, was shaking her as an angry mastiff would shake a little cur dog. Meanwhile, Daryl and his assistants and onlookers, now numbering almost 50, got back to praying for her dispossession. At 1pm, finally, tears ran down her face and she fell to the bed, stiff as a board, the spirit leaving her body like a great breath in the vision of a great ugly toad, round like a ball. Like the others, the demon returned an hour later in the image of an old man, grabbing Jane by the throat and tempting her with everything that she could desire. With his disappearance, the house finally fell silent, and after a rest period of two days, the ministers declared the inhabitants successfully exorcised. The exorcism of Cleworth Hall had been a traumatic and challenging event for the ministers, and as soon as they were sure the demons had truly been cast out, Darrell and Moore quickly left Lancashire and returned to their home parishes. Though it wasn't long before Darrell was back in action again, Emboldened by the multiple dispossessions, he took on his grandest case to date, when he took into care a young musician's apprentice named William Summers from the township of Nottingham. Summers had been on the receiving end of witchcraft twice in his life, the first after he had found a lost hat whilst visiting a market. Taking the hat for himself, he was later approached by an old woman, who demanded that he hand it back to her. He gave the old lady the hat, but decided to keep the metal hatband for himself, which led her to cursing him as he walked away from the scene. That night, the old woman's threats became realised as William lay awake, quivering in fear after seeing a strange light hovering through his bedchamber. Shortly after, William found himself attacked by an unseen force that pushed him eight yards into a ditch by the side of the road, where he lay for four hours, paralysed with fright. After he finally drew himself up out of the ditch and returned home, he fell violently ill, convulsing painfully. The strange fits and convulsions continued daily until his master eventually released him from his employ and sent him home to his mother's in order for him to gain some rest. William remained free from struggle for several years following until March of 1596 when, now aged 19, he was once again come across an elderly beggar followed by a black cat who upon being turned away threatened the unlucky young man with a slice of bewitched bread which he reluctantly ate under threat of being thrown into a pit if he did not. Apparently, this ungodly bread took seven months to work its magic, as it wasn't until October that William felt its effects, when he suddenly fell into a spate of madness, sporadically bursting out into song and dance, before convulsing violently. He refused to eat meat, and at times it was reported that a strange noise was heard emanating from inside of his body. At other times, he would curl up under his bedclothes before springing up a good height from his bed, or else beat his head against the floor so violently that if he wasn't restrained he would have caused himself serious injury. All the while, he yelled blasphemous phrases, claimed himself to be God, told of how he was possessed by a spirit named Lucy, and spoke in Latin and Greek, both languages they had no prior knowledge of. Following the exorcism of Cleworth Hall, Darrell gained the reputation as the foremost expert in exorcism, and as such, he quickly received requests for him to travel into Nottingham and dispossess the young William Summers. When he arrived, Darrell concluded that Lucy was in fact the unclean spirit of the old lady that William had met in the market, now deceased and back to enact her threats and curses. 
By the time that Darrell arrived, William was in a sorry state, his hands and face having turned black, his body cold and his breathing shallow. His movements came in trances where he would speak to Darrell, prophesying on future events, or with his eyes shut, where he acted out a whole host of bizarre events, from the robberies of highwaymen and pickpockets to the miming out of street brawls and whoredom. In one particularly low moment, he even attempted to sodomise a dog, which in several years of making this podcast is easy up there with one of the most wrong lines that I've ever had the displeasure of reading. The following day, Daryl began his exorcism. Like before, it centred around fasting, followed by prayers that made up the basis for his Protestant dispossessions, assisted by a host of onlookers and fellow clergymen. Daryl took his leave that afternoon in search of further clerical assistance, leaving the crowd to continue the prayers, but his absence seemed to strengthen the spirit of Lucy, who was said to pull William's tongue back into his throat so that when the onlookers shone a candle into his mouth, they could see no tongue or part of it. The following morning, Daryl returned with his spiritual backup and proceeded to continue the exorcism. William was carried into the room by five large men who were needed in order to restrain him as he lashed out, convulsing violently as Daryl read biblical scripture aloud. The exorcism took all day, concluding that evening, when William fell deathly still and the onlooking crowd cheered. For a while, following the exorcisms of Cleworth Hall and of William Summers, John Darrell gained a reasonable bout of fame and was called upon throughout the Midlands to deliver sermons. Though they were not always well received and many were concerned with how much of his time was devoted to talk of the devil. Unfortunately for William, it soon became apparent that the exorcism had not been as successful as he had concluded and by October, Summers was back to his unwell ways. And this time, he had somehow managed to infect his sister too. Convinced that they were under the spell of witches, whom they also believed they could identify, William and his sister Mary found themselves central to a twisted sort of line-up whereby either William or his sister would give the name of a local whom they believed was a witch and Daryl would have them brought in front of them. If either of the two possessed displayed any untoward reactions, Daryl would have the suspect arrested on suspicion of witchcraft. This crude display ended in the arrest of 13 locals as Darrell, called in to exorcise William's demons, instead turned the young man into something of a witch-finding tool. Unfortunately for Darrell, one of the witches named by William had been Alice Freeman, the cousin of a member of the council, and although the magistrate eventually dismissed the case outright, the accusation did Darrell absolutely no favours with the powers that be, who were getting somewhat sick of the minister's fiery rhetoric that had been stirring up the town. Acting against the minister, the council began to publicly label William Summers as a fraud, and by association, Darrell too. Darrell defended his position from the pulpit, whilst the council members worked to turn the already wavering public opinion onto their side. In January of 1598, the council brought charges against William for bewitching a man to death, an accusation that had been levied against him by a recently deceased local who had told his wife that on his deathbed that he had crossed paths with William whilst at the market, and that the possessed man had stepped on his foot, turning it black, eventually leading to his fatal illness. Whilst William sat in jail awaiting his trial for witchcraft, he gave in to the council's demands, and fearing the gallows, handed over a confession for counterfeiting possession, which they took gladly, rescinding their accusations of witchcraft in return. 
In his official written confession, Summers fingered Darrell for inciting him into the fraud via his sensational sermons. The Archdeacon of Derby was soon notified and soon too the ecclesiastical officials were descending upon this revolutionary exorcist. A commission was formed, an investigation into Darrell and the William Summers possession case was opened, a move which Darrell himself initially supported, hoping that it would clear him of fraud and remove the tarnish upon his reputation. Until it became clear that the outcome was not going his way at all, when he was issued with a warrant and, together with his assistant George Moore, dragged off to jail. Denied bail, the ministers were forced to await an appearance before the High Commission in London in a dingy cell. The commission was headed up by a group of bishops, theologians and judges, all representing a Protestantism that held no place for the puritanical evangelising or demonology of Darrell and his ministry. Officials were dispatched across the Midlands to investigate all of Darrell's past exorcisms, interrogating witnesses while simultaneously rallying an anti-Puritan movement to counter the voices that stood against the commission. Brutal in its politics, the commission dismantled Darrell's ministry and pinned the crime of heresy to his name, suggesting that he was a danger to the crown and country. Though by the time the trial rolled around, the charge was changed to that of fraud and counterfeiting of a demonic possession and exorcism, whilst Darrell was also accused of actively coaching William Summers through his fraudulent possession. The trial itself was heavily one-sided, with Darrell and Moore given little to no access to the proceedings. Moved into separate jails, the pair were not allowed direct access to their own lawyers, their only access being to hire a group of independent lawyers and having them write to the court lawyers assigned to their case, whilst the vast majority of the defence witnesses, which included Nicholas Starkey who had travelled to London to plead in favour of the ministers, were just simply not permitted to speak. Knowing that confessions of fraud from the dispossessed characters of Darrell's exorcisms would carry the best chance of a successful conviction, the commission set about intimidating the witnesses, pressuring them to sign confessions and threatening them with imprisonment and even execution if they didn't. Finally, in December of 1599, Darrell and Moore quietly received their verdict, which had purposely been kept out of the public. By full agreement of the whole court, Darrell and Moore were condemned for a counterfeit. After 18 months of imprisonment whilst awaiting the trial, Darrell and Moore were offered a conditional release, provided that neither was to preach nor speak of any of the exorcisms that they had witnessed and carried out, nor were they allowed to preach any more about matters concerning the devil, possession and exorcisms. In the aftermath of the commission, the public fought their own battle with the ecclesiastical officials. Puritanical factions raged a propaganda war with the church, with both sides fighting for spiritual orthodoxy. The church maintained that there had been no cases of demonic possession since the apostles, whilst the Puritans, backed up by many of the folk beliefs of the nation, thought otherwise, and this battle raged for decades to come. Following the exorcism of the Lancashire Seven, most of the possessed fell into obscurity, never to be heard from again. The maid, Jane Ashton, went on to live with her uncle following the possession affair, where she converted to Catholicism and later became repossessed. John Starkey grew up and became a staunch Puritan, and while serving as Justice of the Peace, he oversaw a trial condemning a group of 16 witches to jail, several of whom died in custody, before the young boy who had supplied the damning testimony admitted that he had fabricated the entire event. The other five members of the Lancashire Seven disappeared entirely from historical record. 
The reports of the possessions in Cleworth Hall are unique not only due to the role that they played in church history, but also in that reports of multiple possessions in England were extremely rare, and mass possessions even more so, being far more common on continental Europe, especially within Roman Catholic societies. So what was going on? Was there really an element of witchcraft? And had the hall become a target for curse or bewitchment, or had demonic possession become infectious? Was it a simple fraud, like the commission fought for, or was it a case of mass hysteria? One interesting aspect is that the possessions were limited to the less educated and young of the household, leaving the well-to-do elements, namely Nicholas and his wife, well alone. Following their release from prison, Moore published a pamphlet on his experiences within Darrell's exorcism ministry, and then disappeared entirely, whilst Darrell continued to preach just as he had before, even in spite of his conditional release. Forced somewhat more underground, he still managed to release several pamphlets in the fight to restore his reputation and back his demonological views. If nothing else, his conviction and continued presence further opened up the theological debate over demonology in reformist Britain that continued for many years after the affair had been long since sealed. As to whether any of the possessions had ever been true or not, or simply dramatic and elaborate frauds, the answer seemed to fall to a matter of belief. And whilst many towed the church's line, there were many more who clung to a more traditional set of beliefs, for whom demons, witchcraft and possessions were a cut and dry matter of everyday life. So that was kind of broadly the story of Daryl and of the Lancashire Seven. We'll talk a little bit about that after these short advert breaks. Forbidden history, grisly ghosts, monstrous cryptids, and harrowing folklore dominate Japan's history and culture. Mysterious Japan is a bi-weekly podcast presenting these spine-chilling horror stories, urban legends, and unbelievable histories in a campfire story format. Many of these tales have never been presented in English before. Our journey takes place where dark history and supernatural folklore collide. Mysterious Japan is produced, written, and translated by recognized Japan expert Dr. Heath Havey. Season 1 relates the unbelievable legends and ghost stories from the so-called suicide forest. Listen to Mysterious Japan for free on Spotify, iHeartRadio, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Learn more at our website at themysteriousjapan.com and be transported by unbelievable stories where the lines between reality and folklore become blurred in the shadowlands of Japan. Once again, that's themysteriousjapan.com. Welcome back. So yeah, there's kind of a lot of aspects to that story that are are kind of worth tucking into a little bit. To start with, I guess we'll kind of maybe talk about um, Nicholas Starkey's uh, folk healer, uh, Edmund Hartley. Edmund Hartley was in a quite interesting chapter. I I have read about folk healers and cunning people and conjurers in a few episodes of Dark Histories before. There was the the Irish episode that I did about the lady who uh, thought her husband thought she was a changeling and set her on fire. There was a cunning folk element to that I remember and there was also one I think in the very start of episode six there was one about a guy who went who uh, was on a farm I I don't remember the episode so much but there was a big part about cunning folk there anyway I've read quite a bit about cunning folk I find them really interesting and I think they're a really fascinating element of uh, sort of British folk history and sort of the folklore of the British Isles and the fact that many are still operating right up until the sort of late 20th century um you know or even now there's still 
elements of these folk healers in, in our culture, I find really fascinating. Um, in this case, Edmund Hartley, I think, was just a pervert. I think perhaps a lot of the issues that were going on were actually, um, as Nicholas Starkey thought, were, were, were probably to blame on Edmund Hartley, but not because of witchcraft. I think they were probably to blame because people were just acting out against him. I think the children probably felt um, threatened by him. I mean, he sounded basically like a pervert. He, he went around like groping and, and kissing the, the girls, especially the young girls. The, the maid seemed... Okay, so this, this is tough. In the writings, the maid seems to go along with it to a certain extent. Like they, they seem to enter into kind of like these strange relationships with him. But you've also got to remember that these are pamphlets written by men in the 16th century. Um, and they're talking about a lower class uh, of society in, in, in sort of the maid servants and, and the house staff. So you wonder how much they went along with it and how much they were just sort of disregarded and, and not even considered. I think that's probably more to do with it. So th- basically this, this lecherous old guy was, uh, you know, walking around this house that he lived in and being like harassing everyone so i think that actually had like a large part of it i think a lot of it was just acting out against that uh, interestingly i think and i i do question um with the possessions i i do question um you know whether or not that was perhaps some some element of kind of mass not mass hysteria because well maybe mass hysteria but but some sort of element of that i've got, i've got a really interesting um book it's the the uh Encyclopedia of Extraordinary Social Behaviour, and it's and it documents lots of these sort of things where, in sort of small closed communities like an estate hall, for example, or an estate manor, where the children would have gone outside of the hall, but but largely their lives would have centred around the hall. You create this kind of closed system, and within that system, it's very easy for things to become infectious, to ideas to become infectious, and and behaviours to become infectious as well. And I wonder if if that might be part of it. I, I tend to sort of feel like sometimes with these exorcist uh, stories, I, I get a bit, I get a bit reductionist, and I, I I sort of pull them down to like the basic elements, which a lot of, to be fair, a lot of lay people like myself and you know other podcasters do. Um, yeah, and it's the easy sort of answer is that you know the it was just mental health or it was like mass hysteria, but. But I think like it's possibly uh, you know a combination of many things. Um, but 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 it's interesting I think to see that uh, um, the people affected were the young kids in the house and the the lesser educated uh, like like people of the house. I think that says something about perhaps that element of um, like closed system and 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 ideas and behaviours becoming infectious. I, I think that's possibly something interesting about it. But yeah, anyway, um, that 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 I thought was interesting. The last thing I guess to really talk about was Daryl and uh, his ministry of exorcism. I, I think this element of the episode is really interesting. How in Reformation, it, it, throughout the, the the Reformation, you had all these old ideas that were essentially illegal at this point, but people, of course, weren't really ready to let go of them because. For a long, long time, they'd been a source of comfort or or, um, or protection for them. And so suddenly they, they had all this ripped away from them and they felt vulnerable. And so, of course, the, the logical answer was to like, look for it underground. So, so, so all this sort of like, these sort of exorcism happened underground. And in a way, I see 
Daryl as being quite um, quite modern in, in his approach to this. And in fact, I think the church actually did the wrong thing here because the church's idea was essentially, right, okay, we don't like it, we'll stamp it out. Instead of like doing what Daryl was doing, which in a sense trying to like absorb elements that he saw as beneficial and, and then translate them into this sort of new Protestant form so that it, it you know strip it of its kind of Catholic origins and 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 repurpose it effectively like I say absorbing it in in into his sort of version of Protestantism and and the official church obviously they didn't like this but and just sent you know that, that they seem to have come at things with a bit of a sledgehammer instead for them you know like it was just stamp it out but like I say I think in order to keep people happy I think I think you, you're always going to do better to absorb and evolve, um, you know, the, the anything that threatens, uh, anything that threatens the hegemony, you absorb it and and evolve to, and evolve to include it in some way. That Therefore, it placates the masses, right? So I think Daryl actually had a really, possibly didn't know it in these those terms, but, you know, I think what he was doing was actually really good. Um but I thought his case was really interesting. There was a bit more to the politics than what I went into, and it, and it, this is, it was quite broad um, and and quite heavy. So I, I wanted to keep it flowing and and you know obviously quite relatively light and just give you an introduction. But there was much more to the politics around the town of Nottingham at the time, and actually like like the long and the short of it was how I presented it in the episode in that Daryl effectively chuffed off one of the higher ups and they kind of like took that personally and came down upon him and, and took him out. But there was also much more to it than that. The, 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 the town was essentially run by this like oligarchical uh, um, council structure that um, was struggling with um, sort of revolutionary uprisings from the, the kind of lower classes. And there was a lot of um, political discontent at the time. And so Daryl coming in and s- s- given these fiery kind of talks about the demon and the devil and all this was kind of seen as inciting this kind of uprising. And so that was like another sort of reason why he was kind of stamped out as quick as he, and as harshly as he was. But obviously I, I, I say, I didn't want to go too much into the politics too much because I, th- I mean, I think I already did quite a lot and I think it would have bogged the story down quite heavily if I'd gone too much into it, but it, it was, it's really interesting. It's definitely worth reading. There's a really good book about this. Um, I mean, I, I read a whole bunch of really interesting books for this episode. There was obviously the original sort of sources written by John Darrell and George Moore. Um, they both wrote pamphlets on it, which were, were both really interesting. Incredibly difficult to read because they're written in like ye olde English, right? So quite complicated, but 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 interesting, none the same. Um, and obviously, you, of course, when you read them, you have to read them through the lens of the you know, exorcists, and they obviously had their own agendas. But but more modern books, um, obviously. Um, there's a book called uh, The English Exorcist, John Darrell and the Shaping of Early Modern English Protestant Demonology uh, by Brendan C. Walsh uh, that I thought was really good. Um, and that that goes really much more into the politics surrounding uh, the situation um, and a bit more into the High Commission as well and, and their, their motives. Um because obviously, you know, they were heavily motivated to get rid of him. Um, and and I, I, I say, I put that across in this episode, I think. But I wanted to keep it brief without getting too bogged down. If you're interested in getting like bogged down in, in this, definitely give that book a look because uh, it's really interesting and it's 
although it's like fairly academic, it's um, it's, it's it's a it's a pretty breezy read, even so. So yeah. Anyway, uh, I hope you enjoyed the episode. I thought it was really interesting. I thought it was a, a slightly different take on the, on the normal kind of um, demonic uh, exorcism episodes. Um, but anyway, uh, yeah, I hope you enjoyed listening. Uh, I'll be back. If you would like to contact me and uh, talk about it or anything else, uh, you can get in touch with me uh, email. Uh, it's contact at darkhistories.com. There's also all social media. Um, you can DM me on there. Uh, all of the links to that are in the show notes and also on the website, which is darkhistories.com. On the website, you'll find links to all the ways you can contact me, uh, links to the community over on Discord, as well as all the ways that you can support the show via merch, uh, the books, or, you know, uh, supporting the show via Patreon, which is, of course, always uh, greatly appreciated. If you prefer not to support uh, financially, there's always uh, ways you can support just by sharing the show around with your friends, maybe giving us a review, that would really help. Anyway, thank you very much for listening, as always. I hope you enjoyed it. I'll be back in a couple of weeks with another episode. So until then, take care, sleep tight.